as the CEO and founder of my company, if I can be empathetic to what my people will think when we take a certain action or when we say something and put myself in their shoes, I will make better decisions for them. They will see that I'm putting them first and they will more want to be motivated to work and engage with the work that they're doing. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Welcome, leaders, to another episode of Leaders of B2B. This is Ledge. I'm excited to welcome Oz Rashid to the show. Oz, love if you would give an intro of yourself and your work to the audience. Yeah. Hey, Ledge, thanks for having me. My name is Oz Rashid. I'm the founder and CEO of MSH. MSH is three businesses. We have a talent business that's focused on full-time hiring and advising around full-time hiring. So we want to disrupt the recruiting industry in that space. We have a technology consulting business that we're also looking to disrupt the technology consulting industry for the better for customers. And then our bargaining and soon-to-be commercialized software offering is around recruitment HR technology software that we hope to release in quarter three of this year that we hope, again, is going to disrupt and revolutionize the hiring space for HR tech. All right. So I'm hearing talent. I'm hearing technology, obviously, as those main driving forces through the businesses there. And and like many services businesses, it doesn't surprise me that you have uncovered ways that you could use technology and even productize, you know, around the things that you've learned in the space to make it better. That's a pretty common thread. But yeah, love to hear your story. Like, how'd you get here? You've been doing this, I think, what, 12 years now. So when you look at like 10 years in in businesses, particularly businesses that you founded, that's a pretty good and long one. (laughs) So I'd love to Love to hear the story. Yeah, I'd love to tell you that this was something that when I was eight years old, I knew what I wanted to do and I just worked my entire life to get to this point. But really a lot more happenstance than that. As I've kind of gone back and looked at my growing up with my parents and my family and my experience as a child, I see some of the pathos that were formed that kind of led me to where I am. But let's fast forward a little bit to early in my career. So I actually started my career in Fortune 500 Corporate America. Also, got coming out of college, did not realize that's what I wanted to do with my life. And quite frankly, as a 24-year-old getting into a Fortune 500 company, my first thought was, how am I going to be able to make any type of impact and do anything of value when I'm working with people a lot of times twice my age and a lot more experienced than me? And what I realized, what a lot of people know is that just because a company is really big and has a big brand doesn't mean that they do everything right. I kind of started working my way up there. I was in technology. I moved up into a project management role. For those who don't know, that's obviously somebody that's helping manage software projects for you know large companies. And so I was doing that in the quality assurance space. And I was lucky enough at the ripe old age of 26 to be able to give the responsibility to hire people. And for me, I had not come in through a a recruiting company. I hadn't applied to a job posting. It was very serendipitous how I got the job. And so I didn't know what to do. I was like, well, okay, I got to fake it till I make it, I guess. I I went to the side and asked a couple of people I trusted, how do I hire people? What do I do? And they said, listen, there's these recruiting companies out there. And, you know, they'll help you find a great candidate for the job that you're looking to hire for, hopefully. And then they're going to pay them a fee if you have success. I said, that sounds easy enough. But then they told me, but I think here's the caveat. You're going to be a little bit underwhelmed. 
And I said, all right, listen, I'll take an open mind. Let's see what happens. And so I'm 26. I start, you know, getting uh, really excited to hire for these positions. I put a lot of due diligence around. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's the personality. Here's the objectives. And I was spending time with like three or four different firms that were approved vendors at our company. And very quickly, I became underwhelmed. And, and why I was underwhelmed, listen, listen, services is not an easy space to play in. So I get that. And I'm pretty forgiving in that space. But I think what kind of upset me the most was, you know, while I was getting coffee cups and taking out the happy hours and things like that, I didn't feel listened to. And then worst of all, it felt very commoditized and transactional. Right away, I was like, well, wow, this doesn't make sense that this feels like I'm buying a used car. This is not, I'm bringing somebody onto my team. This is a big deal. And so I thought about it from my perspective as a young hiring manager saying, well, my ability to get promoted is at least in part due to the people that I hire on my team. So that's really damn important. If I thought about it from my company's perspective, right, the difference between number one and number 10 in your industry is the type of people you bring into your organization at the end of the day and how you develop and retain them. And then lastly, I thought, man, as an individual, right, as a candidate, a lot of times your entire life is hinging on or is relying on a new job, right? And when you get a new job, it really changes everything about your life, hopefully in positive ways, right? Your compensation, commute, development, all that stuff. So I'm just sitting back and thinking at the time, you know, working with these, you know, very young, early in their career recruiters, that it was being treated like a transaction. And for me, that didn't make sense with how important it was to all the different stakeholders. And a lot of things happened after that eventually led to the formation of our company. But I'll pause there because I don't want to I don't want to get in my soapbox for too long. Yeah, man, I've had the similar experience. I mean, I, I did the big box sort of company stuff and long enough to realize that this sucks and I want to do this and let's go, you know, start my own. But I always found that it was it was relatively shocking the low level of quality that in general, a lot of service providers gave and you hoped that it would be. <laughs> It'd be a lot better. And it didn't seem like there was a lot of options there. And recruiting in general was a place that as a sales professional, people almost always told me like, you never want to go do this. Like you're going to get burned out. You're going to get destroyed. Like it's a thankless job. And, and you kind of go like that sounds yeah, <laughs> right for disruption on the provisioning side and on the experience side and CX. And so, I mean, yeah, how did you even go about doing that? Yeah, so listen, it didn't happen right away. I, it's not that I quit my job immediately and said, this is my life passion. I noticed a problem that happens with a lot of entrepreneurs. And I got to be honest, it kind of bugged me a little bit. I was like, well, you know, my family has been laid off before. I know people that are looking for jobs and looking for careers. And so many people are dissatisfied with their work. And I felt like the industry was a little bit of a laggard, right? In terms of technology and customer discrimination, in terms of like how discriminate customers are about a service and what they're willing to pay for it. That had disrupted every industry early in the 2000s, right? Retail, automotive, financial services. And just for whatever reason, in the human capital space and kind of the staffing and recruitment space, it didn't seem like that was happening. And so always there's an opportunity to, to make things better. My first thought was, man, if I was doing this just by showing up on time and being on point and listening to my customers, I'm probably going to be ahead of 95% of the game, right? But then I really started to think about, okay, well, listen, if the way things have been are not the way that they're going to be. What does that look like in the future? And that's when things got pretty exciting for me, because I think for me, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, I'm not necessarily motivated by finances. I'm uh, motivated by impact. And what I felt like was like a lot of intellectuals had not stayed in this space and really built out this space in a way that was transformative. If you think about it, you know, the resume, how long has that been around for? I think Leonardo da Vinci invented it from what I remember, right? The interview process, right? We've been doing the same thing for so many years. And I think we think we're all very good at hiring, but the data absolutely says that's not the case, right? If you look at attrition and engagement and tenure 
it's going down. And I think a lot of it has to do with finding that good fit. So as an entrepreneur, like any good entrepreneur, I said, well, listen, I want to tackle this problem and because I'm so passionate about it. I think that this is something that I can really provide value to over time. And so then, of course, the other aspect of it, it becomes the technology aspect, because if you're going to be in any business where you want to be transformative and technology is not a big part of that plan, I mean, you're not going to get much off the runway right at the end of the day. So that's really what kind of brought me to it. And I've been able to find people who think like minded to me. I've hired a lot of people who have gone through bad hiring experiences at our company who want to change it for the better. And quite frankly, kind of shunning what the rest of the industry has done in some ways. You know, a lot of times it's make 100 calls, talk to 20 people, submit some candidates, and it's a numbers game, right? And for me, that's part of the problem. It's a transaction. That's a commodity. That's not service. That's not intimacy. That's not engagement, right? And so what I wanted to do and what our company wants to do is we want to be consultative in this space, right? Because again, not everybody gets the tools to be great at hiring. In fact, most hiring managers, if you think about it, they're not trained in how to hire when they're put into that position. And so if we give them the tools, if we empower them to make better decisions, that leads to better outcomes for everybody. So that's why we've taken that consultative approach rather than just being you know, a transactor in terms of need a candidate, get a candidate, fill a role, get a role, fill a role. Um, and that's never been our methodology here. I mean, so what, roughly speaking, is the right way to do this that you've discovered? Because I, I can look at my own self and be like, yeah, I have monumentally sucked at this. I'm going to go get a partner. People ask me all the time, like, how should, how should I hire salespeople? How should I build a sales team? And I'm a good practitioner. And I don't know. I don't even want to do that. Like I would hire a partner. But what is the right path? How do you find human to fit into the right role where everybody's going to be happy and successful? And, you know, I mean, there's so many variables. Well, Ledge, first off, you're self-aware. That's the first step, because I would say that most people I talk to don't necessarily look at it the same way that you do. They don't look at this as an area of expertise. I think there's a couple of things to take into account. Right. One is. What I find in general, and we've surveyed a lot of hiring managers, is that they don't enjoy the hiring experience. A lot of times it's taking them away from what they think their core competency is, like, say, sales for yourself and saying, oh, God, I got to get away from my customers to go hire for my team. And so one of my main premises is that I think everybody, if they put a lot of thought into this, the amount of thought and time that needs to go into it could probably be pretty dang good at it. It's just that we don't have the time with our deadlines and with our home lives and everything that's going on there. Something is going to get short shrift. And a lot of times that's going to be hiring. So that's one aspect of it. I think we need to, you know, technology and a good service provider can take a lot of that heavy lifting off your plate and allow you to spend less time to get better outcomes. So that's one aspect of it. Another thing I really believe is that sometimes recruitment, in my mind, is misplaced in HR. And here's what I mean about that. I actually think that there's more alignment with marketing. And why I say that is when you have a role and you have a company that you work for that you want to put out to the market, you are essentially marketing to everybody hey, this is why this is a great company to work at. This is why we have this great employee value proposition. This is why this job is a great fit for you. You're really marketing at the end of the day. And then once you have that great candidate, a lot of times you're marketing it back to the internal team to say, this is why I think this person's going to be a perfect fit. And if you use that as your paradigm instead of HR, because listen, I love HR. I've spent my career now in HR, but I do think that at some companies, there's still this idea that it's this compliance and governance and kind of hand slapping function. And when you look at what marketing is, marketing gets so many resources. It's looked at as revenue generating, right? We talk about cost of acquisition of a customer, right? But the lifetime value of a customer, but what about lifetime value of an employee? What about cost of acquisition of an employee? This seems very, very important to me. And so I think a lot of times if we just kind of shift our mindset and make it more of a marketing aspect of what we're doing, not falsifying, not vaporware, but if you're really taking the angle of like, okay, I want to do this well, I want to put the time in to make sure I'm diligent around what I'm looking for and how I identify the right candidates for that. And then I 
hopefully market that fit to them appropriately, and then they market themselves back to me, we can make a good decision. So that's the second thing. And then the last thing I'll say is, I just think with a hiring manager, we get into a manufacturing line type mindset, right? All right, got a job. I got to get through my five candidates. I got to interview them. I'm going to ask the same questions of all of them. I'm going to get my feedback and I'm going to move on. And to me, that completely belies the fact that we've all been candidates at one point. That empathy that we should have around going through this experience and what it means, good or bad, whether you get the job or not, is something that we almost lose sight of when we get into the point where we're in the power chair, when we're in the chair that's supposedly making the decision, right? And so I think a big aspect of it is having that empathy and allowing for the interview to be more 50-50 proposition than, say, 95-5, where I let you ask a couple of questions at the end. At the end of the day, you're both interviewing each other. And to find a great fit, both sides need to find kind of that harmony. Candidate experience is, is absolutely right. And like all you read about, and, and I've had this experience, it's like a, it's some kind of privilege to apply to be part of your magnificent company where, and now you look at the news as we're recording this, which mega company laid off 500, 1,000, 10,000 more people yesterday. It's a horrible experience. And I know I'm going to throw my resume into a black hole where some AI is going to filter me out based on like nothing even remotely relevant to my actual life. And then I'm going to go through eight rounds of interviews and then get ghosted. I mean, and that's like, that's a standard experience now for technology and big services companies. You kind of go like, that's horrible. Here's the thing, right? When, when it's a company that maybe you're a consumer of at the end of the day, right? You're not going to want to work there. What if they come back to you with another job that's a better fit? You're not going to want to work there because you had a bad experience. You're certainly not going to tell your friends to go work there if they ask you. I mean, it's a horrible brand exposure. And then you might not use their product or services anymore going forward. So again, we just have to take this marketing mindset to this because I think it's one of the most underrated aspects of marketing when you go out to the market, especially if you're a big company that's like having tens of thousands of people apply every month, right? That is an experience that you should hold sacred and try your best to make it one that people want to enjoy and, and be a part of. I mean, every one of those things is a customer touch point one way or another. Like if people can walk away from that and say like, you know what? They didn't hire me, but that experience was awesome. Yes. Like, And I will spend my money and I will advise my friends to go through that because it was frigging Disneyland. It matters more than we think. There's no question about it. Does that ever happen? I mean, you know, like now I, I guess that's the point, right? That you want to make that happen. I also know that you're right about, you know, God bless our friends in HR, but the selling into HR is horrible. And it's because our organizations tend to treat those people like disposable cogs. And I think there's been some movement to try to go like, oh, chief people officers and talent, you know, directors and, and things of that nature. But invariably, we camp a bunch of operational functions that are really not about talent. They're about, you know, regulation and, and legal and financial. So the, the whole idea of how we functionalized, how we deal with our human resources, actual talent, humans, is just pretty wrong. Ledge, let me tell you, like the company was founded in 2011. And one of the main premises is that both information technology at the time and human resources were looked at as back office functions, right? Keep the lights on, do kind of the tactical stuff that we need you to do. And why we formed this company and thought it would be very disruptive and innovative is because we looked at some of the biggest companies in the world at that point, and they weren't what they are now. But you look at the Googles, you look at the Amazons, right? Those companies had heavily invested in technology and in human capital and resources in that space and had tons of success. So it was almost looking at a blueprint of, well, these companies picked up on that rather quickly. And now other companies are going to follow along with that. And so I totally agree with you. And the thing about HR is that 
HR, in my mind, there's two different types of HR. There's strategic HR and there's tactical HR. So what you were talking about in terms of the, the governance and, and compliance, listen, that's necessary. A company has to have those things. Let's be clear. But that's the that's the administrative aspect of it. That's the tactical aspect. But the strategic aspect, man, your ability to attract the right people, your ability to develop those people, and then your ability to retain those people has bottom line consequences to Wall Street, to the CFO, to the CEO. And so you have to be an excellent business partner. You have to be strategic. You have to be in the business to be successful on that strategic aspect. And that's something that I'm grateful. We work with a lot of clients who believe that. And it's kind of one of the things that I want to evangelize to everybody. It's just so dang important. So here's something that just occurred to me. You're like, okay, we're talking about starting in 2011, watching these companies do some amazing things, bringing on tens of thousands of people. And it's freaking amazing. Well, now we're in 2023. And for the first time, it's like, oh, wow, we massively over implemented that process. We hired 50,000 people that we don't need or are poorly aligned for the first time that we've seen a major downturn for that tech sector. So what can you also learn from that? Because I think the pendulum swung a little maybe too far. We got into people collecting as a differentiating factor rather than actually being efficient and executing. Totally agree. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about commoditizing people. And let me tell you what I mean by that. So the term of du jour right now is for the in industries in general is uncertainty, right? Even with our clients that are having good quarterly financials in quarter four, it seems like there's a little bit of like, you know, wait and see. And I think from a lot of perspective, there's risk mitigation there, there's hedging there. But a lot of times that stuff can become a self-fulfilling prophecy too. So I think it's interesting that everybody's kind of waiting for someone else to make a move. I'm hopeful that things turn for the better once we start to see what the quarter one financials are, if they maintain from what they were in quarter four and quarter three, which for a lot of companies was pretty good outside of the technology industry. And here's why, in my belief. So obviously in the pandemic, what happened? We were sitting at home, we were reliant on our technology, right? We saw the numbers about Zoom and how they went through the roof. There's all types of technology companies that started seeing all types of growth that you would never typically see in 2020 as the pandemic onset started. And really, it kept growing throughout the pandemic, especially in the technology industry. So what I think when I when I say it's treated as a, a almost commoditized, it's that these companies looked at that moment in time and said, and a lot of people did this on a lot of levels during the pandemic, but then what they were saying was, this is the new way forward. Everything has changed forever. New normal. It's 100% remote. It's streaming. No one's ever going back into a theater. Well, the reality is the answer is usually always somewhere in the middle. And so they acted and operated as if it was this gold rush that we need to hire all these people to be able to meet this demand that's going to be going on forever. And guess what? That's not what happened. What happened was there was a return to normalcy. People craved going back to some of the things that they had that were not technology reliant, going into theaters, being in offices, things like that. I'm not saying that's everybody, but we've certainly swung back a little bit that pendulum back the other way. And so then what happens? These technology needs and numbers and stock prices go down because it's not the hiring that was happening. That's not the record revenue numbers that were happening then. And so this is a correction in a lot of ways. That's what my hope is for the long-term economy going forward here in North America, obviously. And that is that what we're seeing is not necessarily you know, too big of a recession, but what we're seeing more is a correction of a lot of overhiring, a lot of overzealousness, a lot of this is the new normal and the way it's going to be going forward. And so I think that's what we're seeing a lot of. And I think it's unfortunate because a lot of people were impacted you know, by that. And, and listen, it goes on both sides, though, because people were getting salaries and flexibility and benefits that they'd never gotten before. The pendulum, after being so far on the company side for so long had actually swung the other way to the employee side, which led to the great resignation and all these different things. And so now you saw employees making decisions as if this was the new normal. I'm always going to get this level of comp. I'm always going to get whatever I want. 
I guess my advice here would be that no matter what happens, it's it's probably not going to be one extreme or the other, one way or another. It's going to be somewhere in the middle. And you got to figure out where things sit on the spectrum. As a business, you've got to invest in hiring in that way. And you can't just be focused on money, 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 money and take advantage because that's going to lead to some bad outcomes a couple of years down the road. And then on the employee side, I think you should always have a skeptical eye when something seems too good to be true because maybe it will be. And, and then you're in a place where you made a decision that wasn't the best at the time. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting, like some of that reckoning for everybody behaving like things are insane, just joining the insanity with no read on like, <laughs> you know, anytime people say the, the new normal, you know, I kind of just roll my eyes a little bit because I'm just like, man, you know, if you look at the scale and you zoom out far enough, we got a straight line up and to the right, like nothing is new, nothing is different, you know, and I, I think there's an accountability to this this idea of just groupthink and acting insane. Totally agree. Everybody thinks about things at the extremes. And we see that in all different types of ideologies. We see that in all different types of things. People want things to be a certain way, right? Crypto, obviously. I'm no expert in that space, but you know, I love the idea and the concept of it. But I always had concerns about what the application would be and what governance would come into place. And, 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 and we see a lot of those things fall apart. And so I think what happens is what we need to do is we need to be measured in our approach with things to avoid having extreme outcomes. Because usually there's always a cause and effect. And very few things change dramatically forever and never go back to the way they were. That just doesn't happen as often. So what are the universal truths of hiring or you know talent management technology that you know, any size company... I mean, not maybe at the very beginning, but like you could set baselines, you know, so just best practices maybe that to prepare for growth, to prepare for proper management of hiring. I might have a partner, I might not have a partner, but you know, it's like, I think there are maybe standard stacks that, that are useful for people to think about where they didn't before. Yeah. And listen, I'm going to speak to my own company and what I've seen with other companies, but particularly what we try to do here. So I think the first and most important thing is I believe that the employer and employee relationship for many, many decades now has been broken fundamentally. Right. And a lot of it started back in the 80s when you first saw the first wave of layoffs. And then companies started to follow the line on that and say, oh, well, we didn't hit our quarterly numbers or we didn't make our bonus. And so thus it's okay. To, to treat people like numbers and let them go, right? And listen, that doesn't mean that you don't make business decisions, but when you take that type of apathy to people, to people that have invested in you in their careers to come to your company, I just don't, I don't think that's right. And so then what happens is you have now employees saying, well, if you're not looking out for me, I'm going to look out for me. And then they start making decisions accordingly with that. So I think what we really need to have is reciprocity. Any good relationship ledge that you've been in, you had to sacrifice and the other side had to sacrifice to get mutual benefit out of it. That could be friendships, that could be relationships, and that should be a working relationship, right? The company has to give to the employees and also the employee at times has to sacrifice and give to the company. And when you do that, that's how things become sustainable and long-term. So my first thing I would say is, you know, Richard Branson said this, I'm, I'm stealing this from him, but he said, employees first, customers second. Because if I take care of my employees, then they take care of my customers. I could not agree with that more. I love our customers. I'm customer obsessed. But the reality is, is that our customers turn over in, in, in our industry and their cycles there, right? Hopefully my employees, and I think we have an average tenure of four or five years, which in our industry is absolutely bananas. That just does not happen. And that's because we invest in our employees up front, take care of them and invest in them in a way that is their whole self, right? So that they feel like they're being invested in as, as a person and not just as what can you do for me as a company? And then they do a great job of taking care of our customers. So that's, that's really funny how that works. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it from a talent management perspective is a lot of people are trying to figure out how do I reach Gen Z? 
How do I reach millennials? Well, you know what? I hate putting these kind of guardrails on, on generations because most of the things that apply to them are what apply to Gen X and, and baby boomers too, okay? And here's what it comes down to. People want to be part of something bigger than themselves. So whether you're selling chicken sandwiches or you're doing sanitation or you're saving the whales, there's got to be purpose behind what you're doing. There's got to be more to it than just making money. Because at the end of the day, if you're the only one making money off your idea to make money, then you're not going to have people following you for very long. So there's got to be purpose to what you're doing because people want to be part of that, right? Next, you've got to invest in your people and their whole selves, like I just said a minute ago. And I think that's a really important thing. A lot of companies have learning and development programs, but what they're focused on is I'm going to develop you so that it benefits me as a company, which listen, I think that's important. I, I We're going to spend money and invest on things that we think are going to help our company long-term. But I also think if somebody wants to get into project management and it has nothing to do with their career, right? I'm going to invest in that for them. Maybe it'll pay off for my company at MSH. Maybe it'll pay off for them down the road, but they're going to remember that and they're going to have more skills because of it. So to me, it just seems like a, a really good idea. And then I think the other thing is, You've got to have empathy. And now listen, I think this is such an overused word now. I've been saying this for 10 years, but you know, right now it's become a big buzzword. But I actually think it is the number one key to business success. And here's what I mean. As the CEO and founder of my company, if I can be empathetic to what my people will think when we take a certain action or when we say something and put myself in their shoes, I will make better decisions for them. They will see that I'm putting them first and they will more want to be motivated to work and engage with the work that they're doing. If I can put myself in my customer's shoes, even when they're at the angriest of angry and listen and empathize and then come up with a solution for them, then I'm going to be able to be much better for my customers and have my customers keep coming back. You know, it's so funny because, you know, I run a business where we interact with, you know, hundreds of customers on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis. A lot of times what I think about is when I call Comcast, okay, and my I have an outage at my house, right, in terms of my service. And when I have to wait on the phone for five, six, seven minutes to get a hold of somebody, and then I have to re-explain my problem two or three times, I'm not feeling very good about that. I'm not having a very good customer experience. And now I don't even remember why I was upset in the first place. I'm upset about something all brand new. Now, if I take that approach and I say, we will respond to our customers within an hour of them emailing us. We will take calls at all hours of the night. We will solve their problems when they need them because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are funding what we're able to do as a business. And so we have to treat them as a priority. Maybe not the top priority, like I said, because I look at employees as that. But we have to do that. So I think that empathy aspect, and then if you can do it with your vendors too, like a lot of times vendors are treated as hammers versus nails. It's not a good partnership. That's not how you get what you want out of that relationship. You can empathize and realize that you're a vendor to somebody too and put yourself in those shoes. I think you're going to be in a good spot. So I actually think those are three keys for me in terms of how we built our business that I think has led to a good culture that I think has led to that great tenure I talked about earlier and a lot of engagement from our employees. Now I'm curious, like, you know, I think you guys are, around 300 team members now or something like that and like at some point you pass the point as a founder and ceo where like that you even know everybody that works for you like i mean usually literally can't and it and when it got to that point i'm curious like that's an inflection point that must just feel like weird you know i have people that work for me and i want to make part of my thing but i don't know them anymore and i i think that happens probably earlier than folks imagine as they're scaling Brother, it's a great question because there was a time when it was like seven or eight people and I knew these seven or eight people probably too intimately, right? There's probably too much, you know, all in, in terms of we all knew what was going on in everybody's lives and what we were doing. And what you realize is as you scale, that's no longer possible, right? Now I will tell you, 
we do do things like we have an all hands Monday meeting where everybody in the company sits on, on a call for a half hour and we talk about, you know, what's going on in the company. We talk about recognizing our current team members. But also, if you're a new employee starting that day, you're on the front line. We're going to ask you about where you came from, what you're passionate about, um, you know, maybe a little bit about your family and why you came to MSH. So at that level, we definitely get to know people, at least at a very cursory level for our North American employees. And we have two huge offices in India. So we don't share this across both boundaries, but I think they do this in India as well. After the first two weeks, you got to do a presentation on yourself, who you are, where you came from, what matters to you. I get so much positive feedback about that because, I mean, you should see some of the moments we've had where people had parents that passed away or they struggled through adversity in college or they had some sort of issue where you understand that whole person now after sitting through that presentation. So that's another way that we get to know. And as the CEO, it's kind of selfish too, because I can sit in on those and get to know our people a little bit better. But the last and most important thing at my level, because you're right, I can't know everybody on an intimate basis is my direct reports, man, I know them backwards and forwards, what motivates them, what they care about, what's important to them, how I can best reach them. I put a lot of time thinking about that, but then I work with them to make sure they're doing those same things with their team. What is a manager at MSH? It's different than at other companies. It's better than at other companies, quite frankly, in my opinion. And so we have to train them and hire behaviorally for that. If you're going to lead people here at this company, it's a privilege. It's not something that's a given. A lot of times in companies, you know, you've hit a couple notches on the results meter. So they move you up to management. We don't do that here. There's plenty of great opportunities here financially and otherwise for people who are great individual contributors. But to be a manager here, you have to have a different set of skills. And so we take that so seriously. We train it so seriously. So now we have me with direct reports, with their own direct reports. And hopefully you're getting that level of leadership knows who I am. Leadership cares about me, right? And you're getting that at all levels. And I do make an effort to try to IM people. And when I visit an office, I try to go and shake hands with everybody, spend time with everybody as, as harder and harder as that's going to get as we scale. If you make it a priority, we make time for what's important. Our people are important. They invested in me. They invested in our company. They could have worked at a lot of other places. I take that seriously. And so at the end of the day, I try my best, although I probably miss to be as known as I can and try to put myself out in front of people. But you're right. As we grow, it's going to continue to be something I have to be more and more intentional about. Right on, right on. Last thing before we run out of time, you know, I'm curious about, uh, I've always been interested in the assessment space and, you know, there's like so many different tools and like, how do you find the right fit? Are there any assessments or tools or surveys or any of these types of things that, that you particularly have found are helpful because, you know, if you start to implement that as a founder or, you know, a leadership team, you kind of go, geez, there's like 10,000 of these things. Should I do strengths finder? Should I do disc? Should I do, you know, predictive index? And it's just gone and on and on and on. Like any thoughts or feedback over the years on which one of those things are best for a company? We've used them all. I got some friends at some of these companies. So I want to make sure I shout them out appropriately. Predictive index, right? Lominger, MBTI, Thomas, you know, like with the disc assessments, we've used all of those. Here's what we do now. We got to eat our own dog food. We are a company that helps people hire better. So to do that, we have to have our own methodology. And so we have created our own methodology. And it takes from a lot of different places in terms of what we do. But in terms of hiring for us and hiring for our clients, we have a very rigid intake process around a company, a function, and a role. And it's not just do they have 10 years of Java experience? Do they, have they worked in an integration before? It's about behavior. 
It's about what is the team dynamic? What is the team missing? What could the team use to augment it? What is the management's leadership style? And then what are our core values as a company? When things really hit the bricks, how do we respond? And what are the core values of the company where our character comes out? And so we build questions around that, right? From an overall cultural perspective, we do it on a roll-by-roll basis, and then we train against it as much as we can. And listen, we're not perfect. We're dealing with people. Hiring is tough. Behavioral assessments are tough. I don't know that there's a silver bullet out there. There's lots of ones I like out there, but I haven't found one that fits perfectly for us. So I would use those as a tool, but never have it replace your own behavioral and cultural assessment. If you have to bring somebody into every interview who's an expert in that space, do it. Because as great as these tools are, they're built for scale. They're built generalized, right? At a lot of times. And some of these companies will work with you and customize it to to your approach and your profile. But I find that if you just only rely on that, you're going to have outcomes where you look back and say, why did this happen? Why did it not work out? And that's why I do think, again, it goes back to putting that time into it. You got to put the time around what's important to you and what works. And then you got to constantly reanalyze that because things do change, right? Wherever we were from zero to 20 million is different than what it takes from 20 to 100 million. And so we've got to constantly be assessing that. And that behavioral aspect is a big part of it. What got us here won't get us there. No, I love you saying that because like every order of magnitude, it's a different company. It's just not the same, you know, and we see companies change so much from, you know, 20K MRR to 200K MRR to to you know 2 million MRR like i mean it's just like this is not the same company that you started or ran up to that point and making those transitions is i think that's what founders struggle with a lot because like most companies open and do not get to a million dollars some don't even get to a hundred thousand dollars so if you get to a million dollars probably feeling pretty good like all right i know what i'm doing here right and so then you let's say you get to 10 million dollars now you're really baked in i really know what i'm doing here i didn't know you nobody really knows until they do it but once you have that success it can be very self-fulfilling and validating but here's the trick what got you to that level you have to almost completely flip it up to go to that next level and that's something that i continue to work with and adjust myself and some of the people that you hired day one are not the people that you need year five or year 10 or whatever it may be that's tough it's evolving. It's a changing dynamic. And so I think you're totally spot on. I think that's something that we don't probably put enough into as entrepreneurs. And how do you invest in your own growth there to be ready for that, you know, as a founder? I'm a voracious book reader. So I, uh, I don't read any fiction. Um, I read all, all nonfiction, all on topics that I want to continue to build my depth and expertise. Obviously, I've been reading a lot about SaaS for much of my life, but even more so over the last year as I move into this brave new world that I want to be successful in. I read a lot on management. I read a lot on culture. I read a lot on philosophy. So those are things that I read quite a bit. Second, I do whatever other people do in terms of social media. I, Twitter is very important for me as a utility. I'm able to go and research a lot there. If you curate your feed in the right way and don't create your own personal echo chamber, it can be a very beneficial tool to get smarter faster. I listen to podcasts and that really helps. But then the biggest thing is I reach out to people right that are better at me at anything. And there's a lot of that. And I just ask them questions and I want to build a relationship and a network. And there's certainly things that I'm sure I bring to the table that they don't have, but I am always picking brains of other founders, of other CEOs, of CFOs, of people in the supply chain, of people in marketing, because I want to learn. I want to understand and I want to apply that. And not only that, I hire those people too. Like anybody who's sitting here at the CEO level and thinks that they can do it all, no chance. And it's not because you don't have the time. It's because you're not great at everything. The best CEOs build teams that augment their weaknesses. And as they get up to a level that it's not a liability, they still have people who are experts on the side who can help drive them. And so I just fundamentally have a growth mindset. That's a big cultural totem at our company. And so 
I tell people all the time, I am not ready today to be the CEO of a billion dollar company. But by the time we get there, you better damn well believe I've done enough learning that I'll be okay. Nice, nice. That'll be the next interview, you know, once you hit the B. Waz, man, thanks for hanging out. Really appreciate it. If anybody's resonating or, you know, they want to reach out or what are the best channels to do that? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. So you can always get me at Oz Rashid, obviously MSH. If you put that in there, I'm sure it'll come up. And listen, I'll just put my email out there. Oz, O-Z at Talent MSH. I have enough vendors reaching out to me. So I'd ask that it's not them. But if you have any questions or if I can help with your career or anything like that, I am more than happy to do that. I'm an open door in that way. Awesome, man. Hey, thanks for uh, hanging out today. Really appreciate it. All right, let's talk to you later. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.